President Biden this week released his annual budget. In a letter to lawmakers, the 46th president said that this $5.8 trillion proposal would, quote, grow our economy while ensuring that the wealthiest Americans and the biggest corporations begin to pay their fair share. This week, we take a closer look at what the president is proposing for the upcoming fiscal year. What does this budget actually mean for the policy debate in D.C.? And what would its impacts be on the U.S. economy in the face of record high inflation? Welcome to The Deduction, a Tax Foundation podcast. My name is Jesse Solis, host of The Deduction. And this week, I am joined by our senior policy analyst, Garrett Watson. He's got 5.8 trillion things to say to us this week. Garrett, how are you? Doing well, my friend. How are you? I am doing well. So 5.8 trillion, that is the size of the budget that President Biden released this week. Uh, Before we even get into the nitty gritty of this budget, my first question for you, Garrett. Why does the president release a budget if Congress is the body in charge of spending money? Well, as we all remember from our civics class, there are uh, three branches of government, right? You have the executive branch, which the president is in charge of uh, executing the laws and administering the programs that Congress has passed via legislation in the legislative branch. Uh, And then, of course, you have the judicial branch to to judge and weigh the various uh, laws that have been passed. And what we have found in that process is the president has a lot of information necessary to determine uh, whether or not programs can be effectively executed. And so as part of the budgeting process that occurs every year, the idea is the president and the White House kick it off by suggesting what the budget should look like that Congress would pass into law by going into detail, sending in hundreds of pages and and a ton of of information on uh, the various programs they'd like to see changed, the funding levels for those programs, uh, and different ways to raise revenue. And as you referenced, sometimes that can be uh, quite aspirational. Uh, it, it can uh, yield uh, budgets that are very different from uh, what the budget currently looks like. But it's uh, ultimately up to Congress to decide what they want to do with the budget. Uh, oftentimes, it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, but it is an informative document that helps us determine what the White House is really looking for in the budget this year. Okay, so what you're describing is not always something that's simply a political marker, this is what I want. It often can serve to be useful saying, we spent this much with the Navy last year. We don't need that much, or maybe we need more given changes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it takes into account you know the economic environment, how much revenues come in, how much they expect to spend with with programs, and it's also meant to be aspirational in that they may propose expansions to new programs, or for example, uh, may want to have an expansion of defense spending, which is really uh, salient right now given what's going on internationally. Uh, and so it's meant to send a message to Congress, and it's often linked up with uh, the State of the Union. This year, it came out a bit after the State of the Union on March 1, mm-hmm. but sometimes we'll get a preview of, of that uh, in the president's address to Congress then as well. And has this been a longstanding practice? Has every president released a budget, or is this something kind of new in our political sphere? Yeah, so the budgeting process compared to the, you know, the history of the entire nation is actually a relatively modern phenomenon. It really kicked off with the Congressional Budgeting Act of 1974, which came out of uh, some of the chaos that happened in the, in the Nixon administration and the Watergate scandal. And it was really meant to formalize a lot of the process uh, in budgeting for Congress and the president. And that's really what kicked off the uh, sending uh, a yearly budget from the White House and the president uh, to start that process. An important part of this, of course, is that process has, has itself changed over time. Usually, at least historically, uh, Congress would go through the process of of having every committee which has its relevant jurisdiction determining the appropriate levels of authorized spending for each uh, sort of area of the government. Uh, that hasn't happened. That process known as regular order hasn't happened 
much over the last uh, 15 or so years. Instead, what we've seen is uh, leadership in both chambers going ahead and packaging stuff up in a quick manner, putting it into what is known as an omnibus, which is a legislative vehicle, and passing it all at once for the president to either sign or veto. So the process has become a little more chaotic over time and and sometimes very late. Technically, the, the budget for fiscal 23 should be established by October 1 when this this fiscal year ends. It doesn't line up with the calendar year. But very often, they have to come back to, to Washington, scramble, extend the current budget effectively, and then pass it late. For example, this past year's budget was actually passed in the spring of this year, despite the fiscal year starting last October. So that's just a good example of the, the process that can be a bit messy at times. And I'm glad you got into the process a bit there, especially talking about the congressional part of it. That could be a whole episode in in and of itself, because you got your appropriations committees on both sides, and then you have, yeah, the vehicles they all go through. Um, But we're here today to focus on the president's budget. And you mentioned earlier, this, in addition to being something that is a useful document saying this is what we're seeing, it also sends a message. uh, This is my priority as a president for this next year. What would be the message of Biden's latest budget? Yes, I think what the president and the White House are trying to do is thread a pretty sensitive needle right now, which is the president's sort of seminal economic and social policy plan known as Build Back Better has uh, come to an abrupt halt uh, as of the end of last year and coming into the spring. And so they had a decision to make as to whether or not how much and whether they would include any of that in the budget. Instead, they've taken a very different tact where instead of uh, proposing a massive increase in spending in the budget, they've actually reversed course a little bit and uh, decided to uh, propose a budget that would have a net deficit uh, reduction of about a trillion dollars over 10 years. Really important, though, to note that most of this budget assumes that some version of Build Back Better passes, uh, which may have its own independent effects on on the deficit as well. And so a lot of what you can see in the budget this year, including that deficit reduction, some of the tax hikes that I'm sure we'll get into, uh, the spending changes, all of that is layered on top of what they hope to have uh, be a successful Build Back Better process in the spring uh, that would uh, be separate and over and above what we saw in this budget uh, this past week. So, so to clarify, the president has released this budget saying, here's my $5.8 trillion plan for federal spending. But in that budget, it assumes that his Build Back Better agenda is already law. But Garrett, last I checked, Build Back Better hasn't been passed. Correct. That's right. Yeah. So it's really meant to try to ensure that any negotiations that are happening right now are not disrupted. So they just assume, for the sake of the budget, that uh, that the some version of bill up better passes. But as you say, that's assuming the very thing they're trying to to get done, uh, which I think will, really means a lot of the stuff we see in the budget, particularly on the tax side, is more aspirational because a lot of the stuff in bill up better is still itself facing an uphill battle in Congress. Uh, and it's very uncertain as to whether or not even that stuff will get in. So it's uh, it, it does make for a, a more unique dynamic this year than last year when we saw a more, I think, explicit and clear uh, agenda by the president set forth to Congress. Yeah. And if for anyone interested, you can go back past episodes. Garrett was on here talking us through Build Back Better uh, and what still hasn't been passed yet. Um, but with that being said, are are there any surprises in this budget on the tax side? The spending side, we don't really need to get into. But on the tax side, is there anything new in here that the president is proposing? Yeah. So the major item that is that was surprising that people only learned about a couple of days before it came out was a proposal to tax the unrealized uh, capital gains of, uh, of billionaires, uh, actually any household with a net wealth over $100 million. 
Uh, and this is very, very much a continuation of a debate and a discussion that many folks, particularly on the center left, have had on how to increase taxes on very high uh, earners, people with uh, large amounts of wealth. Uh, for example, Senator Wyden last fall introduced a variant of this proposal. And effectively, what it would do is it would require those households with over $100 million in net wealth to pay taxes on appreciated gains of assets they, that they may hold, be it, say, a privately held company, some artwork, a yacht. If any of that goes up in value each year, they typically, under current law, don't have to pay taxes on that paper gain. Under this proposal, they would have to pay some tax on that gain. And effectively, what it's trying to do is it's trying to ensure these folks pay tax uh, now on those gains rather than being able to wait until they pay when those assets are sold. So uh, say you have a privately held company that goes up in value this year, you pay some tax on that value. When you eventually sell that company, say in 10 years, you would square up the amount of tax that you owe then. Uh, so say you owe $20 million in capital gains when you sell it. If you've already prepaid over that time under this proposal, $10 million of those gains, you would just owe the difference. So it's really trying to stop that, that deferral phenomenon that we see by taxing unrealized gains. But that comes with its own set of problems, of course, which we can get into. Because is the point of it that billionaires just keep delaying their taxes and the wealthy keep delaying their taxes? So therefore, to get them to stop delaying, we're just going to start taxing now so we can get some of that money in that may or may not come once the eventual bill comes? Yeah, there's a couple of considerations as to what's motivating this. One is this uh, deferral phenomenon, which, of course, all taxpayers take advantage of when they have paper gains. Uh, but it's meant to sort of limit that uh, ability for these folks who have over $100 million in, in net wealth. Uh, in, in an effort to ensure that they pay some tax, because a lot of their income, at least on paper, could come from these the, these net gains in any given year. And uh, the critique by people on the left is that, hey, like that's unfair. They should be paying some tax on these paper gains, even if they don't sell the asset and take advantage. The second, uh, and I think it's a little more of a legitimate concern, is sometimes these folks could borrow on assets that have gone up in value, uh, take that borrowed, say, a loan on on a private company. Uh, use that loan to consume, say, throw a big party. And then uh, eventually when they pass pass on and give the company to someone else, due to the step up and basis rule, no tax may actually be paid on that appreciated gain. So the thought is if we you know, tax it every year, that avoids that, that situation. The trade-off is it's incredibly complex to administer. It can be very hard to determine the value of a lot of these assets, particularly things like uh, privately held companies that are not often traded on public markets. Uh, and uh, it, it may have some economic inefficiency because it's going to raise taxes on saving in the U.S. exactly at the time when we want to have more savings and more productive capacity. And we're going to be penalizing that through this proposal. Okay. So it's simply not just making the rich pay more. It has longer term consequences that we need to consider if this is to be something that Congress were to take up. On that note, is Congress going to take this up? Or has a certain senator from the state of West Virginia thrown cold water on this proposal like he has some other proposals from this administration? Yeah, so, so this proposal faced an uphill battle you know, right out of the gate. Uh, I think everyone knew that. And then within 24 hours, Senator Joe Manchin out of, out of West Virginia uh, was, was critical about this idea of considering unrealized gains uh, as income because it is a paper phenomenon. Uh, these values change a lot. And I think he, he agreed with the intuition of some of the critics of this proposal, which is that, hey, like, it's really not itself fair to be taxing uh, paper gains uh, and, and treating them as if they're the same as, as earned income. And uh, Senator Manchin emphasized that there may be other more straightforward ways to raise taxes on the rich if that's what they wanted to do without having to resort to this type of proposal. 
So I think it's safe to say that these types of proposals aren't going anywhere anytime soon, but will continue to contribute to the debate about how to reform the tax treatment of higher earners. Okay, so Manchin's not quite on board with this proposal. Uh, Looking at some stories, breaking down the budget, just some top line figures I saw online. Uh, It looks like they wanted to hike the top marginal income tax rate to 39.6% from 37%, uh, which would hit those making more than $450,000. There's some changes to executive compensation, to uh, carried interest, to grantor trust. What do any of these mean for ordinary taxpayers? It seems like there's something in here beyond just taxes for people making more than $100 million, right? Yeah. So the other elements of the of the plan really repackages a lot of what we saw from the president's budget last year on the tax side. Effectively, what, what the White House did is they took a lot of the proposals that were not incorporated into the version of Build Back Better that passed the House and put them back into the budget as proposals to be considered over and above those those tax hikes. And so that's where we see the reintroduction of ideas like raising the top uh, marginal rate to 39.6% for ordinary income, uh, coming back to uh, raising the top capital gains rate to ordinary rates if you make over a million dollars, uh, taxing gains at, uh, at death uh, on top of this billionaire's minimum tax proposal. And so it, it is very important to, to point out that we're looking at, you know, in the budget, it's about a, a $2.5 trillion increase in revenue, then another trillion dollars plus in the Build Back Better uh, package that came out of the House. So we're really talking about combined, it's $3.5 trillion of tax hikes. Uh, not just concentrated on the very top, as you pointed out, Jesse, but on uh, many uh, folks earning over $400,000. Uh, many of them would see a reduction of their after-tax incomes and would see tax hikes as we had, uh, as we sh- showed in our analysis and modeling of the budget and Bill Out Better last year. Uh, and that's going to have pretty far-ranging effects on uh, not just revenue, but also on the economy right now, because it is going in exactly the opposite direction from what we had been doing previously by trying to stimulate uh, demand and the profit capacity of the economy. So j- just to double check there, you said $3.4 trillion in tax hikes here for a $5.8 trillion budget. So we're still running a deficit a little bit here, correct? Yeah. So the, the overall, of course, top line may also include uh, the, the baseline revenue that we're getting from the existing corporate tax and uh, the ordinary income tax. Okay. So you know the, the White House is emphasizing mm-hmm. that, uh, hey, be a lot better is, you know, is trying to be deficit neutral. At one point, they kept saying that you know, it costs nothing or costs zero dollars, which is really misleading. Uh, and even here in, the, in, the, uh, in the, the president's budget, they're claiming that they would save about $1 trillion, reducing the deficit over 10 years. However, that does rely on, on some, I think, unrealistic uh, uh, numbers here. The most prominent one being they estimate that raising the corporate rate to 28%, which is in the president's budget, would uh, raise about one3 trillion dollars over 10 years. Uh, That is, of course, including other changes to the international tax system. But even then, it is a significant uh, increase in revenue over and above what we found at Tax Foundation, potentially upwards of an additional 400 to 500 billion dollars that really isn't easily explained. And so if they're off by this, that $1 trillion in deficit savings disappears pretty quickly. Uh, On top of, of course, the uh, well-known fact that Build Back Better is, in fact, not paid for and would generate a deficit as the Congressional Budget Office showed in their analysis last year. So a lot has to happen for something that is not going to happen, is what we're getting to here. Uh, Washington. So lastly, is there any sort of economic score out there yet from either us or CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, 
saying what this budget would do for the economy or is it still just so complex that it's going to take some time to figure out what its long-term effects would be on the economy? Yeah, so there have not been any uh, detailed uh, economic estimates yet that we are working quite hard at at Tax Foundation to to get a preliminary estimate out. Though we do know roughly what the magnitude may look like. So uh, Bill Act Better itself as passed out of the House would reduce the long-run size of the economy by about half a percent in the long run. So that's sort of a baseline there. And then the president's budget proposals, particularly on the tax side, would reduce economic growth even further, uh, potentially by a few uh, few tenths of percent further, uh, particularly the, the increase in the corporate rate, which we find in, in our estimates, and most economists agree, it is the most damaging source of revenue uh, that you can, you can use on the tax side. Uh, and and that, that is particularly concerning because not only would we have a damaging economic effect, but we would be once again near the top of the rankings in the OECD for the corporate rate uh, compared to other countries. We also would have the single highest uh, combined uh, capital gains tax rate in the developed world. Uh, so we would be topping a lot of charts and not in a good way because uh, if these, all these tax hikes hmm. came into fruition. And so it's a pretty significant change. Uh, and of course, lower income folks under 400000 though they may not see much change in their taxes, would be harmed by this because of the uh, slower growing economy. And we found last year that after-tax incomes would be dropping in the long run across the board uh, from, from these proposals. And at a time of record high inflation still, high gas prices, anything to weaken the economy may not be the most useful use of time. Useful use, I like saying that like that. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, well, that's, that's a lot to, um, lot to take in, Garrett. We thank you for breaking it down with us. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter if they want to keep updated on this budget, our modeling, and more? Yeah, you can find me personally at GS underscore Watson on Twitter. Uh, and of course, find our work at taxfoundation.org. Thank you, Garrett. Well, we'll be sure to talk to you again here soon. Thank you. The Deduction is produced by Dan Carvajal. To learn more about the Tax Foundation and the Deduction, visit us online at taxfoundation.org slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Tax Foundation as well as on Twitter at DeductionPod. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on The Deduction.